Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I talk to our politics editor George Eaton and our actual editor Jason Cowley about our trips to the marginals and whether we think Labour might rule in a minority government after May the 7th. Then Anusha Kaley and Caroline Crampton and I discuss the women's vote. Does it really exist? And if so, what do women want? There is now just a week to go until the general election and this week's New Statesman covers many issues ranging from our reports from marginal constituencies to our decision to endorse Labour, surprise, surprise, in our election leader. I'm joined by our editor Jason Cowley and uh, politics editor George Eaton to talk a bit about this. I'm going to come to you first, Jason, because you've been to Harlow where the sitting MP, is, well, not MP at the moment, the candidate who is hoping to be returned is Robert Halfen who is quite an unusual Tory, isn't he? He's a very unusual Tory, Helen. Harlow was my hometown. That's where I was born. Actually, I was born at home. So I was born there and I went to school there. And my parents left Harlow when I was in my teens in the early 80s. Um, It's a kind of tough, working class, largely working class constituency in Newtown, built up after the Second World War. A lot of people came out of the East End of London from the Bonmarine streets there. And it's always had a kind of local population that was tough, wised up, aspirational. And it's a key swing seat. It it swung to um, the Tories in 83 after the Falklands War, stayed with the Tories through to 97, the Blair landslide, went back to the Tories last time in 2010. And Robert Halfon almost won it in 2005, but he lost by 97 votes. Mm. I've been to Worcester this week, which is my hometown, which is another Labour Tory marginal. Um, and the city MP there was a guy called Robin Walker, who's the son of someone who was uh, Peter Walker, who's MP for about 30 years, which I think is a huge benefit to him there. But the main thing that I took away from that is that Labour are having difficulties there because there isn't a sort of burning desire for change, a real kind of engagement with the political process, a real anger, actually. 
Um, and that's quite difficult for Labour because for, for most people, I think that the, an election is a referendum on the on the government in charge. Is that what you felt in Harlem as well? People felt, well, actually, I think things are getting better. I want to stick with what we have. Yeah, I, I went out um, with Robert um, campaigning and Robert, Robert drives around in a white van. He's an advocate of what he calls white van conservatism. And we went to a very run-down local shopping centre. Robert's disabled, so he, he can't go door-knocking. So he perched himself outside at the local Lidl and listening to people come out. And, yeah, there was a sense of frustration. Living standards are low, wages are stagnant there, unemployment's quite high in Harlow. But what I didn't get a sense is the people he spoke to and the people I spoke to in the town felt that Labour offered the change. They were quite happy to kind of stay with Robert, not least because he's such an unusual kind of conservative who has listened to the local population in the town that he represents and try to channel their their desires, their aspirations, and also um, look at their fears and anxieties. But I didn't get a sense, and this is the seat Labour really ought to win if they wanted to win a majority. I mean, at present, they don't have any seats in Essex. They don't have any in Kent, none in, none in Sussex. If you have the kind of seven wash line, mm. south of that, excluding London, Labour has 10 seats out of 197. Now, some people might say, well, the Tories can't win in the north of England or in the towns and cities or in Scotland. Well, Labour can't win in Scotland now, um, the polls are telling us. So, but if Labour ever aspires again to be a, to win a majority, to be a party of the British nation, they've got to start winning, winning these key swing seats. And there's something in the, in, the, in the South, and there's something about Ed Miliband's very deliberative style, he, what I call his kind of cerebral socialism, that just doesn't resonate in towns like Harlow. Did you find a, a lot of support for UKIP? Because that was one of the things that surprised me about Worcester. Perhaps it shouldn't have surprised you. So Worcester has only got a, uh, a non-British-born population of 3% out of 100,000 people. It's had seasonal kind of Polish fruit pickers for, for a long time. UKIP hasn't gained a lot of traction there. And where it had, it had mostly taken Conservative uh, voters who are now kind of coming back a bit but it's also taking a lot of Labour voters, and I think probably in the medium term, that's a challenge. Is that the same in, in Harlow? There, there, was a, there was a kind of spasm for, for UKIP a while, but they won some seats on the local council, which, which, they've, which they've since lost. And I got no sense that UKIP were, were rising in the town. Labour were very much the second party to the Tories. When I was growing up there in the late 70s, the, the far right were quite active for a period, the BNP. And it's Hollow's largely been a, an essentially a white town. Um, there's, there's, that's changed a little bit in recent years. And you've had some Eastern European migration to the town, although Robert's also somehow been able to channel those communities. I mean, he's, he's talked a lot to the local Polish communities, the businesses, the small businesses, what they want. And what he said to me, and he campaigns on some of the issues as Labour, minimum wage, he's pro-unions, he wants to cut taxes for the low-paid, and what he, what he said to me is that the feeling in towns such as Harlow in Essex is that Labour doesn't understand small business, the small business man or woman, and, and what they want. That may be unfair, and Chukka and Muna would push back on that, but that's the perception. Mm. And George, I want to bring you in a bit now, because we're heading into election week, and it's still neck and neck, but maybe a few polls showing the Tories ahead, so that it does seem to be favouring them very slightly at the moment. Um, is there a reason for that? Is that the result of the... SNP are coming to beat your children lines that have been pumped out. Yes, I mean, all um, parties agree that that line is resonating on the ground in seats. It's, has, it's had cut through, um, as strategists put it. And there are two groups that the Tories are trying to squeeze in particular. 
Uh, one is Southern Lib Dems, who they're hoping to win seats off uh, in Tory Conservative marginals. And the other is uh, UKIP voters who voted for them in 2010 and have defected. Um, and there's some evidence that it's working with both of them. Uh, it may also be some natural swing back to the incumbents, um, which you always you always do see some of. Um, but I, I think we always have to remember that the key question in this close election, in, in what will be a hung parliament, is not necessarily who's ahead on votes or even on seats, but uh, who's in the best position to become prime minister. And the real game changer was uh, Alex Salmon's interview with, with Jason a, a few weeks ago, uh, when he said, you know, I will lock David Cameron out of Downing Street, the SNP will vote down a Conservative government. With the SNP on course to potentially win almost all 59 of Scotland's seats, mm. much easier for Miliband, if the Tories are only slightly ahead of Labour on seats, to, to form a government. And as I write in the column this week, Miliband is far more inclined to form a minority administration than, uh, than to go down the coalition route. I, I think that's a really fascinating point, because you essentially... You know, people like Ed Balls are sort of saying, no, we put our budget forward, we put our Queen's speech and it's, you know, take it or leave it. We're not going to kind of do any horse trading beforehand. Does that then mean that that's a very necessarily a very short lived government? Not necessarily. Um, I mean, whether minority governments endure for a full term or how successful they are is all dependent on political circumstances. So the SNP minority government from 2007 to mm. 2011 in Scotland endured because its opponents didn't want to bring it down because they feared that, correctly, as it turned out, that the SNP would do very well in the subsequent election. And indeed, the Tories voted in Scotland voted with the SNP on exactly. occasions in that, in that government. Which, they, no, as you say in the column, neither side is particularly keen to mention yeah. these days. So, in some ways, based on that experience, that's why the SNP can speak with authority on this subject. Um, minority governments are at their weakest when their opponents unite around a common cause. One uh, potential advantage for Labour is there's very little the SNP and the Tories agree on. So let's take Trident. Labour will always be able to pass that with Conservative support. And then if you look at, at the budget, uh, well, the SNP going to vote against the budget that includes almost all of the tax policies that but, are in but their George, manifesto. what about rebellions from inside the Labour Party mm. from the left over over austerity yeah. or, or fiscal consolidation? What will happen there? Could, could the left of the Labour Party join forces with the SNP? Yes, they could. And that will be a case of who blinks first. It will depend how many are prepared to follow through. So when I interviewed John McDonnell uh, a few months ago, he said to me you know, he would vote against any budget or spending review that included cuts and thought up to 40 of his colleagues would do the same. Um, now, of course, it's possible under the Fixed Term Parliaments Act for a budget to be defeated and for the government not to fall. It only falls if a vote of no confidence is passed. Um, what happens to our spending then if there's no budget mm. that's they roll on the budgets from the previous year and then it's up to the government up to the prime minister to compromise and to put the, to put the budget forward again so it happened to alex salmond in the smp minority administration that in 2009 the smb's budget was voted down by one vote um, and actually he called their bluff he said if you don't support me i'm going to resign and try and trigger an early election and uh, the budget in the end was passed um, largely unrevised. So it is this game of constant game of political poker in a minority government. But presumably the Tories would be rather more keen to have a, a, another Westminster election than they were up in Hollywood because they know that they've got pots of cash that no one else has got. Absolutely. But um, as Roy Hattersley and said... And a new leader by this point. Well, yeah, you presume so. But as Roy Hattersley said to me, the trump card that Miliband has over the SNP is that the SNP will not want to be held responsible for bringing a Conservative government to power. Um, it happened in 79 and the SNP lost uh, nine of their 11 seats at the subsequent election. 
And just before we finish, uh, our leader this week, I'm sure it'll be no surprise to our listeners, endorses a, a Labour Party vote at the next election. We say particularly in seats where it looks as though a, a vote for a minority party could could see Labour locked out. We would much rather see Labour in government than the alternatives. Um, Jason, you know, how, how when you were thinking about this this leader, what were the kind of things that were going through your mind about the last five years? <laughs> What was going through my mind is what you lot believed and what you you lot wanted. I mean, I'm a Democrat, so it's not it's not <laughs> not it's a dictator. Not, it's not for me to decide the editorial line of the New Statesman. It's decided by the the whole editorial team. And I remember last time round, I was I was editor in 2010. I, I'm not long after I, I joined, but I was, I was editor, and the conversation was much more open and fluid at that meeting. George, you were present then too, and there were quite a few members of the team. Who were keen to endorse the Liberal Democrats? If you if you think back, they were seen as the more radical option than Gordon Brown's mm. Labour. What was interesting this time round is that there were everyone wanted to endorse the Labour Party. Um, some were more sceptical than others, but nevertheless the endorsement was strong. I think very much there was there was profound disappointment in the coalition's record, not least on the economy. I mean, Osborne had missed all of, all of his all of his targets. And we've been very strong on warning about what might go wrong. Um, and the cruelty of the benefits changes. I think that, for me, is one of the things that most stands out in the record of this government, is whether or not you believe that savings had to be made out of the welfare budget, the kind of just thoughtless way that people's lives were kind of casually destroyed with, with very little kind of, you know, people getting benefit sanctions on a regime that's now being investigated and then taking eight months to get the money back. People who really couldn't spare that. I think that, for me, has been one of the the deciding factors in making me make up my mind on how I feel about the coalition. And also some some of the Conservatives, I mean, if had the Conservatives, some of them, spoken more, as Robert Halfon does, you know, he speaks about having a sense of moral mission. Um, Gove does sometimes when he talks about the need for the Conservative Party to be warriors for the dispossessed. Had we heard a little bit more of that from more of them, then I think the nation at large would have been more sympathetic to the Conservative government. Because, again... They're up against a weak, in my view, a very weak Labour leader who has many strategic weaknesses. He's made many errors. He's not been able to build the necessary coalitions to, to win a majority for all the reasons that you and I spoke about earlier. But nevertheless, in that Labour programme are some extremely, extremely good things, George. I mean, you, you, mm. you talk about that. Yeah, yeah no, so I, I think um, there is a, a plan to build a more productive, more balanced economy, you know, National Investment Bank. There is actually a big devolution, 30 billion to city regions and, and counties. Housing, um, do housing. Housing, 200,000 homes a year by 2020. Um, more asset taxes, wealth taxes. Yeah. I mean, what I don't see there is a political reform agenda that, that I would embrace. I mean, I strongly support a change in the, the voting system. For example, mm-hmm. there's nothing there in the um There's the abolition manifesto. of the House of Lords, which actually I think long seems... Overdue. Long yeah. overdue. We all support that. But Helen, they're not talking... I mean, they talk about a constitutional convention. Mm. I mean, that, that's yeah. absolutely necessary, mm. particularly if Labour is wiped out in Scotland, as looks likely. I mean, it's a, it's a moment of crisis. It's how a minority Labour government would respond to that crisis. Mm. How creative can it be? Mm. Does it recognise the opportunities? Because if it if it botches it, the UK is finished. Well, there's going to be a total bum fight, isn't there, about something that was on our cover last week about the question of, of Englishness and, and English votes for English laws mm. versus, you know, the idea that you'll have a report stage where English MPs can veto things. George, that's going to be very tough, isn't it, for a minority administration to get anything through when the interests are so deeply vested and so opposed? 
Yes, uh, although the SNB have said they will vote on English-only issues, such as the NHS, because in their view it has implications for, for funding for Scotland. Now, of course, that is a huge issue of legitimacy, and there's a genuine one here. I mean, for all that Cameron's rhetoric about Scottish nationalism and, and, and Englishness is, is distasteful, and I think endangering the union, the West Lothian question is a long-standing constitutional anomaly in British politics. There's a serious issue here, and, and the Conservatives have offered a response in terms of giving English MPs effectively a veto over English-only legislation, and Labour have said there would be uh, a much less significant committee, and that English MPs would essentially have greater influence over the, the but legislation. George, I'm not sure Labour Labour are radical enough, or this group of this group of Labour leaders are radical enough to seize the moment or sense the depth of the crisis. I mean, you've got Ed Balls, Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham, Ed Miliband. They've all been in and around Westminster and Whitehall for 20, 20 plus years. I mean, they're in some ways instinctively conservative, small c conservative. Yes. When it I, comes to the constitution. Yes, in crisis. terms of the constitution, you do have this big split in Labour. And this is part of the problem for Miliband. And Miliband is actually on the, on the more pluralist wing of, of the party. And he's someone who is sympathetic to constitutional change, to electoral reform. But you have the very tribal wing of Labour that supports first past the post very ardently. Uh, that actually would probably like to keep the House of Lords in some cases, and that is very suspicious of greater devolution. But there are now some in Labour who are saying that if a minority Labour government is formed and it has weak legitimacy because it's come second and because it's reliant on Scottish rights, Miliband will have to make a bigger constitutional offer. He will have to say, we need electoral reform. He will have to go have much to. further than a constitutional con convention. That is one of the big questions now about the post-election period. But the danger for Labour, surely, is we look at what's happened in Scotland, where you know, Scotland was an absolute home, home win for Labour. Now look at the north of England, where no doubt they will... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Do extremely well, Labour, in this election, but UKIP will come second in many constituencies in the north of England. They will win many votes. They will have a high percentage of the and overall vote. And in Wales vote. as well. Yeah. And in Wales too, Helen. Mm. I mean, let's, Labour must be very alert to the possibility of their their vote in the north crumbling like a rotten tooth by 2020. Some are, yes. I mean, I've had a, I had a shadow cabinet member say to me this week that one of the things Labour needs to do immediately after the election is to rebuild itself in the north, to actually not have these hollowed out parties that take voters for granted. And Miliband's tried to do some of that. You had people like Arnie Graf coming and promoting community organisation. No one thinks that it's gone anywhere near far enough, though. Um, and and it's, Scotland shows that seats you take for granted can be swept away in a but few months. that's what makes me quite optimistic about politics in the future, because actually, like you say, you don't end up with kind of... You end up with fewer kind of rotten boroughs where no one's knocked anyone's door for it, and then it's just assumed that you weigh the votes and stuff like that. And I think that's, mm. that's on balance. That's better, isn't it, if more people feel that their vote counts? Yeah, I, I, absolutely, I absolutely think so, Helen. Also, I, in the leader, which endorses Labour, but we also welcome the emergence of a multi-party democracy. Mm. You know, the so-called the, the smaller parties, Plaid, the Greens, um, the SNP, of course, but also you know, whisper it, UKIP. I mean, they're, they're a reactionary force in many ways, but nevertheless, they're, they're channeling something. 
And they do force as well the, the Conservative Party to decide what it wants to be, whether or not it is an innately Eurosceptic party. I mean, I think that's that's the interesting point about the, the minor parties, is do they siphon off this particular wing of a party, or do they increase the kind of... I, I mean, I think the left-wing parties more have increased the space in which I, more ideas seem possible, because you have got people talking about nationalisation and things like that. You might and you might decide that, you know, those aren't policies that anyone should pursue, but at least there is a kind of sense of a lively exchange of ideas. Things get tested much much better, I think, in a in a multi party system. But I'll I'll gonna cut you off for now because we'll do another one of these um just before the election and then I will ask you for your predictions so that I can uh-huh. mock you after the election. But for now, thank you, Jason and George. Women, what do they want? Can they be stopped? Do they vote in different ways to men? I'm joined by our web editor, Caroline Crampton, and our deputy web editor, Anusha Kalian, to talk a little bit about the women's vote. Um, Anusha, before I bore you with my war stories from the pink bus, which was good, Ed Balls made me a fairy cake. I ate the fairy cake. <laughs> that was the highlight of Every my woman's dream campaign <laughs> so far. Um, you listened this morning to the uh, Women's Hour debate, which had Theresa May from the Conservative Party, Harriet Harman from Labour, Sal Brinton, who's president of the Liberal Democrats, Diane James of UKIP, Ailey Whiteford from the SNP, Leanne Wood from Plaid Cymru, and Caroline Lucas from the Green Party. So the first question is... Which of them did you find the most impressive? I found Harriet Harman the most impressive because she was answering the questions most honestly. And it was particularly striking uh, when a listener asked a very good question about coalition negotiations and whether if there were more women involved, they would create better coalitions and more workable deals. Um, because actually last time round, the only woman involved was Harriet Harman for the Labour side. And of course, they failed to form a deal. And so Harriet Harman an- answered the question by saying um, too many decisions are made by uh, just men in back rooms and it's time for women to be involved in those kind of decisions. And that's telling in itself because most Labour politicians, when asked about coalition, um, don't admit that they're not going to win a majority at the election. So actually, she was giving away a bit there by saying, by hinting that she wants to be part of that process. Um, she very much also wants to be deputy prime minister, which <laughs> isn't necessarily assured. There is no guarantee that you will be you will be made the deputy prime minister. Although uh, John Prescott was when he was deputy leader of the Labour Party. So I think she's putting down her marker earlier that says, "Oi, Ed." Well, the the important thing there is that Harriet became leader, a, a deputy leader rather, um, when Gordon Brown was leader, but he did not make her deputy prime minister in 2007. So um, it is very much in the gift of the prime minister. So it's kind of up to Ed whether he chooses. I mean, I can imagine, given that didn't Ed Miliband work for Harriet Harman at one point, yeah. would it not he, be he was a her bit... special advisor when he soon it after would, he arrives in the it'd Commons? It'd be dead awkward if he didn't. I sort of but... imagine her giving him a clip round the ear and yeah. kind of going. <laughs> Oh, you, I knew you when you were 25, don't know, I, I'll get your file out and start reading it out. I'll have a word with your mum. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you don't do this. It'd be awkward if he didn't make it, but it is up to him. There's no kind of given about it. And did you find the, uh, did you find the, Caroline Lucas, I mean, we already know, is a, is a very impressive speaker. I mean, I think she might have liked to have represented the Green Party at the debates, but was moved aside by Natalie Bennett, who's the leader of the party. Um, did you find any of the other women particularly surprising in what they said? 
Um, Sal Brinton was interesting. She's the president of the Lib Dems, although obviously she hasn't been president for long. It was only at the beginning of the year when she took the job. And when they were asking her about coalition negotiations, she actually said something quite interesting that she hinted at to me in an interview earlier this, this year. She said um, that image of Nick Clegg and David Cameron in the Rose Garden, all chummy and in love, was completely wrong. It was completely misleading and we shouldn't do that again. And I think that's actually becoming a Lib Dem line now. It's part of their differentiation tactic um, to say, actually, we gave off the wrong image. We don't want to look um, you know, like we're, we're really good mates with the party that we have a deal with. We want to look like it's just a professional business contract rather than a, a marriage contract. Um, and Caroline, I mean, how much do you buy? We always have this endless agonised conversation about the about the women's vote. Do you think there is a, a women's vote? I think only in the sense that women do vote. I don't think there's any difference between uh, how women decide who to vote for and how men decide to vote for. There are myriad pressures and issues that individuals in different communities think about when they go to the ballot box. I don't think there's any kind of gendered assumption either way. Um, you were mentioning that there, there was some Women's Hour um, polling earlier this year that showed that that women vote on issues like the economy um, and so on, but they f- perhaps they phrase them slightly differently. They think of the economy in terms of childcare or um, sort of employment, full mm. or part-time employment. It's still the economy, it's just being cut about in a slightly different way. Yeah, and I think the figures show that slightly more women, I think 9.1 million women who are eligible to vote didn't vote last time compared with 8 million men. But I think what there is, is there is a kind of, there's a feminist vote mm. in the same way that you could say that there's a, there's, I think it's probably better to talk about there being a kind of gay rights vote rather than a gay vote. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in the same way you would talk about there being a feminist vote rather than, than a women's vote. Um, but there are definitely. I mean, it's been quite heartening. So, okay, let me tell you about let me tell you about my time on the pink bus. Um, so, the pink bus, which uh, some listeners might remember, was much mocked when it came out. It's actually it's had a prang today. Someone um, bumped mm. into it while uh, Yvette Cooper was doing a mum's net chat. So they're gonna have to kind of take it back to the panel beaters and hammer it out. Um, I did ask Harriet Harman what they were, what was going to happen to the pink bus afterwards. Whether it was going to be decommissioned and kind of you know used to ferry around someone's kids. She thinks someone might buy it. I can imagine actually. Some actor is going to be driving around in this garish bus. But the really interesting thing about it is that she said she went to an advertising dinner, and there people loved it because to, in the advertising world, it doesn't matter whether or not you get pub- negative publicity or you know you just have publicity. And I was actually quite convinced by that because it has become kind of an iconic thing that people will remember from this election. And actually people wanted their photo. So we got to Leamington Spa Station. So we all got on, it was like a school trip. Um, we all went, got on the train, went to Leamington Spa Station. And at Leamington Spa Station, the guy who owned the station or ran the station with a magnificent moustache wanted a photo taken with Harriet Harman next to the pink bus, which I don't know what he's... Share that on social media. Um <laughs> Um, but people really, people were kind of excited by the arrival. Of the, it was a, it was a thing, uh, in a way that I think it's it's difficult to to make in this kind of stage managed election time. Um, and then the other thing that we did, which was I think really good, is we we, we spoke to two different um, groups of, of voters about their concerns. And actually, one of the things that um, Harriet Harmon told me was that actually quite often in those sessions, women cry because it's a chance for them to talk about things that are really difficult problems that they maybe they don't feel that they have any outlet for. So the kind of things that came up, for example, there was a, a young woman there who's a single mother and she lives in a, in a council house because she can't afford to privately rent. Um, she's very worried about she wants to get she wants to work full time, but she, her company can't afford to give her the hours. 
And she feels, she said, I feel that people who live around me think that I'm a chap. Um, and, and people look down on me and a lot of the rhetoric that's come out of the government about kind of benefit scroungers, you know, I, I want to work, but I can't. And I can answer that was, you know, that was really, it was, it was quite hard for her to kind of sit down and, and say that in front of people. And, and the actual, the, the, the point about it, why I, what I quite liked about it was that Harriet Harman's role there is to sit and listen. So she's getting, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that these groups of women are, are pre-selected, but she's actually hearing, I mean, and he's been around an enormous number of places with this. I mean, the bus has clocked up a fair few miles, I think it has to be said. It's it's maximum speed is 60 miles an hour, which actually means that that's why we didn't, We the, like, the bus has to go up <laughs> overnight earlier. Um, and it does have a, a female driver, which was nice. It was full of balloons, which is, if you ever tried to navigate a minibus full of balloons, it was like sort of a really weird round from the Krypton factor. Um... And then Ed Balls turned up, as I said, uh, with uh, he he'd made some cupcakes while listening to George Osborne on the Today program this morning. Just a touch of rum in the icing, he said. Uh, and Harriet Harman seemed very impressed with the crumb. Uh, I think after one too many viewings of the Great British Bake Off, uh, was at that point I thought this is a, this is the most surreal <laughs> afternoon I'm going to spend in this election campaign. But like I say, the bus was very criticised when it started. But they've been out. They've visited, I think, fifty or so places now. And they've heard an enormous amount of, of feedback from people who probably wouldn't engage with politics really in, in any other way. So, and I think the crucial thing about them, about the pink bus being recognisable, is that at the point which everyone was mocking it, they didn't disown it. Uh, politicians like Harriet and Margaret Hodge, and so on, are you know they've they've been around the block. They've done many elections. They've done this before. They weren't going to be put off by a few mean Telegraph blogs. They started using hashtag Pink Bus on Twitter whenever they were talking about the women's campaign. They they owned it, and therefore it's become something recognisable. I think that's something that's underestimated actually about the generation of, of politicians that includes Margaret Hodge mm. and Harriet Harman. Is actually just how kind of not weather beaten that makes it sound <laughs> quite rude, <laughs> but you know what I mean. That like they have taken a, a huge amount of knocks. Mm. I mean, Harriet said to us on the train. She, when she first turned up at the Commons, so imagine what it was like then walking in when he was one of so few female MPs, and I was a young woman and I was pregnant. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, if you think that the, the, the Westminster can be quite male dominated now, I think actually this election campaign, I've never seen so many women. I've seen relatively little of the wives mm. and mm. a lot of female party leaders and, and leading female politicians. It really does feel like something's changed. I don't know if that's your view, Anoush. Yes, well, when you um, watch the election debates that have been on TV every few weeks, it's amazing to see how many women are on each uh, lineup. Obviously, we've got the three party, the main party leaders coming up next week, which is all three, all three of them are men. But actually, the people who have got the most commentary, and not just because they're women, are Nicola Sturgeon, Leanne Wood to an extent, um, Natalie Bennett, um, and Caroline Lucas. People have talked about, you know, the merits of either of those, but they've actually got quite a lot of attention in the press, and not people talking about their clothes so much as talking about um, the way that they deliver um, what they want to say, which I think is a, it a doesn't change. feel like it is. It's kind of accepted and normal that you might have a female leader of your party. You might have a female home secretary. I mean, that's another person who's also, I think, under-talked about. There was a great FT profile of her. It was Theresa May. I remember very much during the Blair years when being home secretary was like the kiss of death. It was like you were then, you were basically on kind of like death row. That you, in, Within 10 months, someone was going to have knifed somebody and escaped or escape, you know, run abroad in a burqa or, you know, something. You were going to be held responsible for something that was, you know, ultimately probably slightly out of your control. And actually, Theresa May, although she doesn't have a huge parliamentary following or a kind of fan club in the media or anything like that, she has been 
quietly getting on with what is one of the worst and hardest jobs in British politics. I thought it was interesting, um, I think it was yesterday David Cameron mentioned that Ruth Davidson, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, might eventually contest for the leadership of the whole party. She might stand for Westminster and, and challenge for the leadership. And I was just imagining a future scenario in which you might have Theresa May and Ruth Davidson as the two contenders for the, for the leadership of the Conservative Party. And that doesn't seem outlandish. That's totally plausible. Ruth Davidson has an extremely strong Twitter game. Mm, I do yeah. not regret following her on Twitter. She posts a lot of photos of her playing bagpipes. She was releasing an owl the other day. She was in yeah. a tank today. She was in a. She was driving a tank. And she won at bingo, and there's a picture of her jumping in the air. She's about two metres off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but the same thing happened with, with Nicola Sturgeon, who I think is also... Um, I mean, actually, occasionally Nicola Sturgeon has to sort of step in and tell the sort of cybernats to stop berating some 12-year-old who's kind of stepped out of line. But she does appear to use it in a much more spontaneous spontaneous kind of chatty conversational way which i i, I think has, has has changed the other politicians kind of attitude towards social media a bit as well i think that's probably developed because people like um nicola sturgeon up until now and maybe ruth davidson as well haven't had to be as on message and as managed and as careful as the politicians that everyone is watching their every move mm. so perhaps they've managed to um sort of grow a bit more naturally than the others um, and now the others look like they're a bit robotic and, and trailing behind in terms of being a human. I think it's really tough because to be a politician on social media. Well, for a start, because if you ever look at their reply feeds, wow, wow, yeah. people have got a lot of thoughts. But and, and and just incredibly abusive to them. So you can't ever, you know, you can't have a normal experience. Like you can't chat with people because there will be someone to turn up here like. Mm f off beaker <laughs> i wonder if um actually some of the changes twitter's made recently about you know splitting your mentions into verified users people you follow and so on helps because i saw just today nicholas Durgeon did a quite amusing reply to one of the guardian scotland reporters who was saying that she didn't know when she was going to squeeze in a toilet break because nicholas Durgeon was doing so many interviews she had to cover and nicholas Durgeon just replied go sorry <laughs> um, i should imagine she only saw that because she was looking at the the section of her twitter profile that only showed tweets from people she follows so she didn't have to see the kind of the long stream of rambling that other people were sending her with yeah i think it's really interesting well i'm, I'm not sure we've solved the problem of whether or not there is a, a women's vote i guess probably on balance we think there isn't but we're very much in favor of women and i think that's come across quite strongly um thank you very much caroline and anoush You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.